Why aren't we able to do this with the decisions that are impacting entire populations at the health plan level, at the public health level, and getting that to become more common practice, I think is going to have really good outcomes. Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science around the globe. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Alex Merwin from AWS. As we try to keep up with the world being transformed by data-driven decision-making, the potential value of a tool that simulates the future of public health is profound. On today's episode, Yin He from AWS Startups speaks with John Cordier, the CEO and co-founder of Epistemics, who built a platform for running realistic simulations of human populations, simulations that reveal crucial points of leverage where a single decision can have extraordinary impact providing game-changing capabilities to health plans and systems. We'll learn how their platform is making an impact in a broad range of use cases from pandemic response to healthcare policies. Let's go. Hello, and welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. I'm excited to guest host the session today. My name is Yin He, and I lead our work with early-stage healthcare and life sciences startups and investors at AWS. I'm trained as a wet lab scientist with a PhD in molecular biology and genomics. Prior to AWS, I was an early employee and operator at a venture-backed startup building cloud labs and software tools to help pharma and biotechs accelerate drug discovery. I'm super passionate in thinking about how we can leverage technology to solve problems in healthcare and improve health outcomes. For this reason, I'm absolutely thrilled today to be joined by John Cordier, CEO and co-founder of Epistemics. John, welcome. Let's dig right in, and I'm looking forward to learning more about your founder journey and how Epistemics came to be. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Great. To, to get us started, can you just tell us a little bit about Epistemics? What do you all do, and what inspired you to build this company? Sure. So at Epistemics, we invented what we call a synthetic population that represents every single person in the entire United States every household, every school, every workplace, and the dynamic interactions that connect people with places and the environment. The initial use case that we had at Epistemics was to better understand the emergence of new diseases evolving in a population. From a forecasting perspective, we were able to simulate the spread of H1N1, any number of emergent infectious diseases, but the use of the tool that we have at Epistemics is the ability to test what if scenarios or interventions or strategies to reduce the continuous emergence of a new disease? And uh, over the last really seven years, we've been going from the uh, research at the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health, where we were the center of excellence for modeling and simulation of infectious diseases, bridging that into more chronic diseases, and bridging that into social determinants of health, risk stratification and other areas um, across healthcare. So at our core, synthetic population simulation engine and giving at this point health plans, pharmacies, pharma companies, the ability to forecast health outcomes. And then what are they doing about them? Whether that's a policy, a new intervention, a new drug, or just broader shifts in behavior that are leading to changes in outcomes. That's wonderful. We'll definitely get back to, to some of the, the threads here. Um, but before we, we, we move on, I really wanted to learn a little bit more about your background, right? How did you get to, to this point? Um, and what was your inspiration for building Epistem? 
Yeah, I think from my childhood, I was meant to end up doing something like epistemics at one point. So I lived in 13 places growing up, see the world from a geospatial, sociological, social dynamics kind of lens, which when I was in college, I did one degree in neuroscience, another in sociology, worked for a little bit, thinking if I wanted to do a PhD in cognitive neuroscience to do education policy or wanted to stay more on the, the healthcare track. And what I realized after a few years was that public health is directly in the middle of neuroscience and sociology. And it took me reading a book a week for about a year to land on that. Ended up going back to the Graduate School of Public Health at the University of Pittsburgh. And I was fortunate enough to start working with the Dean of the School of Public Health and the guy that was leading the public health dynamics lab, John Greffenstedt. And the three of us identified that the way to have the software that was being developed in the public health dynamics lab have the greatest impact and possibility to change the way public health could be practiced to ideally improve the health of entire populations was to try to commercialize the simulation engine, synthetic population, and modeling and simulation framework that uh, we were working on for about 10 to 12 year period backed by the Gates Foundation and NIH. So I got brought into the team as it was already a pretty established academic software uh, platform. And the, the biggest interest for me was how do you look at the intersection of different types of innovations that could lead to bigger changes specific to population health? And for, I was in graduate school and I was reading the book week for about a year. There's one book in particular called The Health Gap by Michael Marmot that I, I really latched onto that gave me the language to describe social determinants of health and why across the city you might be a couple blocks away and you see totally different health outcomes for one part of the population compared to the others, even though in geographical terms, you might be really close. So those are all things that I was very fascinated by and I just see the work that we're doing at Epistemics as the, the, the best way that we can contribute to making an impact on improving the way public health can be practiced. That's what drives myself and drives the team specifically to the healthcare projects and customers that we have. We can't talk about public health without talking about COVID, right? That's still such a, a big impact, right? In so many people's lives, even today, are we two years or, or more right into it? COVID was obviously a huge, enormous public health challenge, and I think really pushed public health to the forefront of everyone's minds, right? Because it just impacted us all so deeply and intimately. With that in mind, what are some of the most pressing challenges right now that you see in population health and, and how do you approach solutioning epistemic? Yeah, from a learning perspective coming out of COVID, I think most people in public health, pop health, health equity, you're really trying to understand change in the population. And that change, it happens outside of your interactions with healthcare. So if you look at COVID as an example, there, were, there was a spread of an epidemic, but it was really a spread of behavior of the population that leads to that epidemic persisting. And, and even before you can look at the change in behavior, you have to look at the change in information that influences our behavior. So I think one of the biggest challenges on a go forward basis is for epidemiologists, spatial epidemiologists, actuaries, being able to incorporate change into the way that they're forecasting health conditions on a go forward basis. I mean, the quick shift for people to latch on to, I'm going to work from home. I'm going from home today. I'm still doing that, not going into an office. Um, that also led to a number of other health changes and health behaviors that happen in our day-to-day -day lives 
that led to new health conditions increasing and some health conditions decreasing. I think the biggest change and challenge is to shift away from just looking backwards to project forward, but understanding what you're trying to do as a public health professional, as a health insurance company to reduce the risk in your population is identify what are the levers to have a behavioral change, behavioral impact from a population, because that's ultimately what's going to shift outcomes the most on a go-forward basis. Yeah, and I want to maybe dive a little bit into that. Can you share maybe some of those levers and what are the, the insights and learnings, right, we've been able to derive through some of the work that you all have been pioneering, right, in terms of looking at COVID and simulation data? Sure. I'll use one infectious diseases example and one non-infectious diseases example to go into that. Uh, on the infectious disease side, one of the uh, new groups that we're beginning to work with, they ended up having an innovation that decreased the amount of time that you can get tests back once you're in the doctor's office. Let's say for the, the specific test in their field of infectious disease, the standard was you get your results back in 72 hours. They've been able to create a process and improve their supply chain so that you can get this test back within 24 hours. And you might say, okay, great. Like, how does that difference of 48 hours impact the community? It's not just the impact of that individual, but those that individuals can be spreading more disease to, more exposures, and so on. And so we were in, you know, we ended up running a number of simulations just to test that alone. And in that infectious disease example, let's say doctor's offices, primary care physicians were able to say, we're going to go with this test rather than the 72-hour alternative one. And we showed that in some instances, you're going to have, you're able to reduce the overall incidence of the disease spreading in your population if everybody shifted to this 24-hour test turnaround uh, product, that you could reduce overall cases by 20% of the population. And wow, what, what does that mean for your community as a primary care physician, family physician, that's less kids having to stay home, which means less parents having to figure out changes in their schedule, kid at home, they're staying home from work, um, and other disruptions in their own community. Being able to go from how does something as simple as the time in testing having a cascading impact on the community, that's a really cool thing that we've been able to do from a simulation perspective. Totally non-infectious disease example, let's look at diabetes. So diabetes, major challenge in the United States and other countries globally, but let's say in the U.S., you know, a lot of, you know, we were at hell, what, a couple of weeks back, and there were probably a hundred plus different companies having some diabetes intervention management platform, program, policy, something. And the challenge with diabetes is it's really rooted in not just your interaction with the healthcare system, but the daily patterns of life what's going on at home, what's going on in your community, what resources you have available to you, and a number of other things. And when we work with health plans, we help health plans and also the companies that are trying to take these new product solutions to market, simulate out what is the ROI of this intervention on the population. And existing challenges in place are, if you don't have data about it, why would you want to roll this out? It worked in this geography, but we don't have data. If you say it worked in Miami, how do we know if it's going to work in Des Moines, Iowa? And the cool thing about using our simulation platform and using the synthetic population is you can pick up that intervention, run the model on Miami, calibrate to the existing data that's there, and then say, okay, let's pick this up and drop it on another geography anywhere in the United States. What's that impact going to be? And 
in a lot of cases, we see that the ROI of investing in some of these bigger diabetes intervention programs actually does not move the needle enough from a health outcomes perspective to just in financial terms, justify investing in that intervention. And so we can really save health plans years of time when they're trying to shift the health of the population of their members and to say, what? Some of these aren't really good investments to make, but let's look at where we want to be in the future. Let's look at what combination of interventions we could possibly roll out with a certain price and investment constraint to say, all right, how can we look at population health management from a different lens? And the cool thing about running simulations is we've been able to do both prospective exclusive simulations, but also here's where we want to be in the future. What condition must be true to help us get there? And it just helps shift the thinking of, of executives and the, the health plans that we're working with to think through what investments they're making, what impact they're going to have over what time scale. Yeah. And I love that, that you're already thinking about outcomes, right? And how much of that can actually be quantified. I think sometimes in the startup space, we, we tend to focus, right, more on the technology. And of course, in order to have a, a business, right, that's successful, you need to really think about the outcomes that you're driving for your end customers. So I really love that example in terms of thinking about the ROI of interventions, right, for insurance companies. So continue on this thread, can you talk about what that looks like maybe for different customer segments of, of yours? What are some typical ROIs or outcomes that you're trying to address and help? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I can go across some health plans and different roles within health plans that we end up working with. So one side of it is a, a chief public health or chief population health officer. So somebody who is in that role within the organization, they're tasked with we need to improve outcomes. We also have to show that our improvement of outcomes is saving us money, not we're spending more money to create those outcomes and make that happen. So for those individuals, when we work with them, it might be, all right, you have your five key programs or five key areas that you're looking at impacting over the next three years. What's your strategy? What are the outcomes aiming to be? Let's get you a baseline. And so when we forecast a baseline, we're looking at every person in the population then we segment the entire population to say, here are your members in their social environmental context. And now let's look at what interventions you're making available to those members. And this is a pretty cool approach because you, know, you might on your own street or in your own apartment building, you might have United Healthcare, your next door neighbor might have Aetna, and somebody else might have Humana. And you know that like the behaviors of People on your street are like more similar than maybe somebody across town or whatever. And so by running these simulations, you're able to see, okay, for our members, we roll this out and by geography or by age or race or household income or some other demographic or psychographic way to describe the population, where outcomes changing and is one intervention better for a certain segment of that population or another and it helps you concentrate your resources there. Totally separate side when we're working with health plans or health systems is with the chief health equity officers. So chief health equity officers are really trying to understand interventions and are they distributed equitably? How is access or what types of social determinants might lead to greater adoption by many people as possible? Uh, from a chief health equity officer perspective, a lot of these interventions might be totally new. And the question is, how do you get 
buy-in from other executives within your organization and other stakeholders in the community to say, you know what, this is not only going to have an impact on the access type outcomes, but also on the health outcomes equitably distributed across the population. When working with chief health equity officers, they have a list of here are policies we're looking at rolling out. Here's different ways that we could distribute these solutions to our population and being able to simulate by every person in the entire population, age, race, sex, geography, household income, whatever it might be, let's look at outcomes based on any one of those demographics. And that's a pretty unique thing to our synthetic population because we're able to factor in things like elevation and changes in uh, air quality in addition to who's adopting this therapeutic, what information is spreading within this specific part of the population and how's that either increasing adoption of a health behavior or hindering it. Those are all different things that we can look at, which is pretty cool. That is really cool. And I feel like we'd be doing a disservice if I didn't ask you a, a little bit about um, the, the technology, right? In terms of being able to model every single person in the US. Can you talk about how your approach to doing this and how do you ensure that there is accurate representation, right, with the population? Yeah, so we start with data from Census, Bureau of Labor Statistics, Department of Education, American Computer Survey, these really big publicly available data sets. And we then generate an agent that represents each person in that aggregated data set. If there are supposed to be 1,000 people within a census block group, we generate 1,000 agents that have the appropriate age, race, sex, household income distributions. We then use an approach called iterative proportional fitting that enables us to match those agents to households, those agents in specific households to workplaces, and, and so on. And when we look at our synthetic population, you can drill down when we run our demos. We, we always start with a map and we start with something that might look like a heat map. But then when we start drilling down and down, you realize, wait, like these are actually individual points that are representing a person and whatever happened to that person within the simulation, whether it was location of exposure or timing of when somebody went from pre-diabetic to diabetic, the timing of somebody picking up their prescriptions at a specific store location. You can get to a really low level of granularity and because we're starting with a synthetic population that matches one-to-one -one agents to people, that enables us to calibrate back to existing data sets. So with health plans, we can calibrate to claims data. With pharmacies and pharma companies, we can calibrate back to was what, what are the claims and when were people picking up their prescription here, there, anywhere else. And that's pretty unique. Um, from a simulation approach, having the, the really robust synthetic population. And um, the, the other novel thing about what we've done at Epistemics is having the simulation engine that enables you to do these computations very efficiently. So we were on AWS, you could take a, a model of a given disease condition, run it on the population of all of New York, pick that model up, run it on the population of all of Chicago, and you're able to do those things in minutes for each run, rather than sometimes days, weeks, whatever it might have been in the past. We feel that's another pretty special thing about our simulation. Yeah, that, that's really unique. And I think being able to have this extremely comprehensive, right, data set that is representing every single individual in the U.S. I'm still wrapping my head around that. 
Can you talk about how that uniquely positions you all to think about health equity? And we talked about before, social determinants of health and how can we use this to, to think about health access and equity? Yeah, the idea that what, 80, 90% of health happens to you outside of your interactions with healthcare. That's, that idea isn't unique to epistemics. That's been in the zeitgeist for a while. But if you look at health as something that emerges from your local environmental conditions, like the, the nurture side of things, having the synthetic population that enables you to describe the people, where they go, where resources are available to them, what news channel they're watching, what social media apps they might be on, is somebody like baseball? Do they like hockey or do they like ballet? Like whatever it ends up being, like the synthetic population at its core enables you to describe a realistic view of the population, how that's changing, how sentiment's changing. And from a health equity perspective, like you're able to have precision health equity, precision public health interventions anywhere across the country, whether you're slicing the synthetic population and a forecast by an age demographic, by a disease condition, just having that really robust synthetic population enables us to do all sorts of different types of analysis. The other thing that we've done with our synthetic population is make sure that people can add more data to it on their own. So when we work with a client and we provide our synthetic population directly out of the box, you don't have to add any data to it to get value out of it. But as people add their, whether it might be customer data, behavioral data, their trend data to the synthetic population, getting a, a more robust view of their population in the context of everybody else. So it can deepen your understanding about who are the people in the population that you're dealing with, what challenges might they have, and so on. And the, the health equity lens of this is the same intervention isn't going to work for each person. And so being able to segment out, all right, where are we going to get the greatest change in outcomes for as many people as possible? Let's run some simulations. And it's better to do that in a like simulation test environment because it saves time. You're not waiting years to see results play out. Um, it also gives you the ability to check what's going on within your existing data against a baseline that says, all right, if all these conditions are true, here's what we would expect to happen. Sure, there's ranges of uncertainty there, but you're able to say, are we on the right trajectory or do we need to change course? And being able to do that more quickly is a, another really good reason why I think chief health equity officers, pop health officers can begin to utilize simulation when they're looking at impacts and outcomes and looking for when they're going to see the ROI of the investments they're making. Yeah, I think the simulation, it's only as good as the questions, right, that are being asked. Are you finding that because you're able to, to, to model, right, every single individual, that it's forcing folks to think a little bit more outside of the box, right, with regards to the types of questions that they ask versus having just maybe traditional data sets? Yeah, absolutely. It helps unlock a different type of thinking where you can truly ask the question of what if, rather than here's the data that we have. What can we do with it? And then that, let's say for some, and we've done workshops on like, what does it feel like when you're given the power to ask what if? Some people look at that as like blue skies, this is great. Others look at that as, oh my gosh, what else is there? And some people clam up around it. So there's a mentality shift when you're able to run these types of simulations. And when you're able to see 
the emergent effects of, well, if prescriber behavior changes over here, how does that impact our drug utilization? And then how does that impact our outcomes? Ultimately, that's going to impact our supply chain. And then you start seeing these sort of systems, how they're interwoven. I think that's something that's really special about using simulation. And there's a number of other areas within healthcare where simulation has been used in the past, training specifically, but being able to say, if we're, if we're working on training, which is really improving the decision-making of our providers who are on the front lines, why are we able to do this with the decisions that are impacting entire populations at the health plan level, at the public health level, and getting that to become more common practice, I think is going to have you know, really good outcomes for, for people going forward. I'm sure you've been asked this before, but what are your thoughts on expanding outside the, the U.S.? How easy would it be to replicate, right, what you've done? And then just, yeah, what that roadmap looks like for you all. We have listeners outside the U.S. that I'm sure they're curious. What does that path look like? Yeah, so we already have synthetic populations for non-U.S. geographies. Uh, we don't have the entire world yet, but we are growing our synthetic population team. So I guess I'll throw in a little plug if building synthetic population sounds like something of interest to you. you know, we're hiring. So yeah, our, our plan, we have Canada, we have other countries that have been built out just based on relationships and other engagements that we've had. But we aim to systematically build out both, I guess, wealthy countries, countries that are, I guess, have less data about their population. Mm-hmm. And some of the challenges that come with that. So I know like the Gates Foundation, they have a big initiative on trying to get some synthetic populations built for countries where like the census data is really unreliable. And so figuring out how to work within those countries to build synthetic populations to really help their public health efforts. And that'll be something that we really look forward to doing in the future. But from a roadmap perspective, we'll likely start with countries that have data most similar to ours and then grow from there. And there's data providers that do work in 100 plus countries. And Mm -hmm. so having the right partnerships are important for us to make the way that we build the synthetic population very repeatable and the same. And we know where these data sources come from. They're reliable. We know they're not going to go away as we need to recalibrate the synthetic populations every year, three year, five year, 10 years, depending on when the different data comes out. So I guess long-winded way of saying we do work outside of the U.S. as well. We're growing our synthetic population team and eventually we'll have nearly every country can have their own synthetic population to test public health interventions. Right. Um, I read an interesting blog as I was doing some you know, research and, and background for this on your website about simulation and prediction and not conflating the two. Um, I thought this was super interesting. So I'd love for maybe if you can share a little bit more about your thoughts behind that. Yeah. When you're trying to predict something, you're really doing a forecast, looking at a point estimate. And anybody that is in the forecasting business, they know that their forecast is going to be wrong. And this is where simulation comes into play. So let's say you you have a baseline forecast. It might be the number of like the incidence of a given health condition, let's call it asthma in a population. You say, here's what is projected. Here's the number of ER visits we expect to see with asthma patients over the next year. And where simulation comes into play is when that system changes. So let's say there's a fire and it's on the other side of the continent, but then the smoke comes and hits New York. And that was in your actuarial table. How does that decrease in air quality impact 
the incidence of asthma that you would expect to see showing up in emergency rooms across across New York. So when you're looking at prediction, you're trying to say, here's the point estimate. When you're looking at simulation, you're trying to understand each component part of what enables those outcomes to happen. And when you change the system, how does that change the outcomes? You You have an offensive and a defensive way of looking at this. From a defensive way, you're trying to say, we're just going to stick with the forecast and that's what is. This is our ground truth to the, the best of our knowledge. We're going to make our plans around that. From a simulation perspective, that's where you get to ask offensive type questions to say, if we make these changes, how does that change our outcomes? How does that change the outcomes for our finances? How does it change the outcomes for our covered lives? Those are all different types of questions that you can begin asking. So the, the way I look at it from our perspective, even though we have the synthetic population and we have shown that we can be very accurate from a point estimate prediction standpoint, the best use case of our synthetic population is the ability to say, when we look at an intervention, how does it change the outcomes? How do you know what levers to pull, what conditions to try to create in the population that enable a different set of outcomes to happen? That's how we begin thinking about it. And again, it goes back to a a shift in the mentality of executives when they're looking at what are we going to invest in? Mm -hmm. What has been in the past might not be an exact replication of how that's going to go out. Yeah. All right. Now I have a fun question. What's the most interesting question that you've either been able to, to simulate or that you would like to using your data? I'll go with what I would like to. So what I would like to do is work with Raj Chetty and his team at the Opportunity Atlas, uh, connecting this back to health equity and health outcomes to say, if we understand looking backwards, zip code by zip code all across the country, here's the opportunity that an individual has to live the American dream. And how does that connect to health outcomes on a go forward basis? I think that would be one of the most impactful things that that we could end up building models and running simulations for to say, let's look at this intervention. Yes, it has a health impact, but it also has impacts on someone's economic well-being, financial well-being, and so on. I think that would be some of the best work that we could possibly do. That's awesome. If anyone's listening and knows Raj Shetty or the team, please let us know that that's something that would be incredible to, to simulate and be able to, to learn from the data. All right. Well, as we close out, I want to ask one last question about all of the sort of future entrepreneurs, right, that are listening in and are thinking about how to be inspired to, to build a company in this space. What is some of your advice for an inspiring entrepreneur in the healthcare innovation space? Uh I think what people have told me is try to convince yourself not to do it and find as many reasons why it's going to be a challenge. And if you're still willing to do it, then maybe build your first Consider business. it. <laughs> Consider it. Yeah, you have to be really, really passionate about it. Every day is going to look different. You're going to fail a lot. And if you're not failing too much, then something else might be in a blind spot for you. But you just have to really care about making an impact and you know, you're going to be faced with the diversity and just, you know, be able to, if you're able to go back to a deeper reason of why you, you care about this thing and how this thing makes the world a better place, great, go for it. If, if you can't answer that, then it's going to be a, a difficult road and probably a short one. 
That's wonderful advice, John, and completely agree with everything you just said. All right, wonderful. Thank you so much, John, for joining us today. And and thanks to all who are listening. If you have any questions, um, please feel free to reach out to us. All right, thanks, John. It was lovely chatting with you. Thanks for joining us today for the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. If you want to get in touch with AWS, please check out our show notes where you can find a link. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to share it with your colleagues and friends. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings wherever you listen to podcasts. We love hearing feedback from our listeners, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. Again, you'll find all the details in our show notes. See you next week.